Hello, welcome to Farmgate. I'm Finlo Castain. This is the final episode in our agroecology series, and I'm joined by two innovative and inspirational dairy farmers who are putting agroecology into practice. David Finlay is from the Ethical Dairy in Dumfries and Galloway, and Bryce Cunningham is from Moscale Farm in Ayrshire. The Ethical Dairy and Moscale Farm can both be found on Twitter and on Instagram. Welcome both. Let's start by getting a feeling for who you are and what you do. And David, if I can come to you first could you just describe your farm and tell us what you produce hi Finlow. yes hi folks our farm is it's about 830 acres based in the southwest of scotland about a mile from the sea where lies between 30 and 300 feet above sea level the, the land is very rugged rocky um, which makes for good grassland but not good for anything else other than trees there's about 500 acres of permanent improved grasslands 200 acres of rough, rough grazing 100 acres of woodlands, of which 75 acres were planted in the last 20 years, mixed broadleaves. There's 130 dairy cows, and all the stock from the dairy, uh, young stock are reared and finished or taken through to breeding. And uh, there's 300 breeding sheep, uh, which are easy care. We produce 400,000 litres of milk and about 400 lambs. And, and Bryce, how big is your farm and what do you produce? So here, here at Mesquil, um we are predominantly a dairy farm. A, l- a little bit smaller than David. We've got 220 acres um, of permanent pasture. We're farming 50 milking cows with a further 50 followers. And uh, we're in southwest Scotland. We're about 25 miles south of Glasgow, a little further north than David at the Ethical Dairy. And we also, on, on the farm ourselves, we also have a processing site. And the idea of that is we're, we're also processing milk from a further five organic dairy farms in southwest Scotland as well. And we are, our cows are, are we're only really producing about 125 thousand litres a year. However, that is increasing every year as we get better at our cow-calf dairying and um, we sort of build in efficiencies and improve our breeding as time goes on. That's great, thank you. And, and David, you farm regeneratively. You're also one of the early adopters or the innovators of cow-with-calf dairy farming in the UK. This wasn't always the case. So what was your farm like when you started and why did you change the way that you farmed? I came back to the farm after 10 years of consultancy to implement the uh, preachings that I had been uh, doing up for, for those 10 years. The farm at that time was pretty low key, low input, um, old rotations, 10 years of grass, a year of forage, turnips, kale and, and uh, rape. Um, and I came in and uh, intensified, so we, we cranked up the numbers, lashed on the fertilizers and pesticides and, um, and uh, increased output uh, probably by about 100%. But the, the, the downside was, well, the costs were shooting up and the um, mortality and morbidity of the stock. It, was, it took a lot of uh, looking after because of, uh, we were pretty intensive. And that was, that was troubling me. But you did become uh, desensitised to it uh, because that's what everybody was doing. And really, I suppose it's only when Wilma came along, <laughs> she was aghast at uh, what uh, was, was happening on the farm, coming from a non-farming background. And uh, it, that kind of uh, started me on that uh, the process of rethinking what we were doing and why we were doing it. And that rethinking is, is clearly, it's been at the heart of your journey ever since then. Now, alongside your dairy farming, you also built your own successful ice cream business, Cream of Galloway Ice Cream, and you built your own adventure playground, which was attracting up to 75,000 visitors a year at its peak, which is incredible. Were you just not busy enough with farming? Well, it really, it goes back to the late 
80s when we were being warned by SRUC or SAC as, as it was in those days that the general agreement in trades and tariff, the big bogeyman um, that was going to come along and club us all, that we had 10 years to get our businesses in order and uh, become independent of, of subsidies, basically. That was that was the message that was put out there. So it was a, it was about deciding how do we add value? Yeah, tourism and and uh, adding value to the milk was the, the route that we took. It worked. It was it was the right answer at the time when we were investing in the diversification businesses. Uh, we really didn't spend a lot on the farm other than fertilizers and pesticides. The the investment went into the infrastructure for the the visitor attraction and the ice cream, and so you know that was major investment. But there was a lot of help, a lot of government help at that time to allow farmers to diversify. It was it was very much the buzzword at the time. Bryce, you were working for Mercedes Benz, and now you're toiling in the cattle shed. So what happened to you? I was born here at the farm. As I was growing up, I had a, a typical relationship with my father that uh, that is probably mirrored in most farms in uh, in Scotland today. And basically when I turned 16 and I left the school, I decided that uh, farming wasn't for me. My father and I had some crosswords and I went off to Mercedes-Benz to start being an apprentice technician. And during my time at Mercedes, I spent 10 years there. I had very much set my eyes on becoming a manager of a couple of sites in southwest Scotland. Um, I was really loving the, the driving around in fancy cars. However, I got uh, I got a phone call in my 10th year at Mercedes from my mother and she said that uh, my father wasn't very well. She didn't know what was wrong. However, the same day, my grandpa had been told he had a terminal heart condition. So I decided to take a, a bit of a holiday from, from my job in Mercedes, asked for, for a couple of months leave. And I came back to the farm just to see what was happening. And we discovered very, very recently after that that my father also had a terminal condition as well. My father had terminal cancer and my grandpa had a terminal heart condition and everything just sort of snowballed from there my, my grandpa he died a few months later my dad he died a year later so we sort of flung into this dairy farm which I, I knew nothing about coming back so I had very little interest when I was young the farm at the time was 150 high production cows uh, they were inside all year round um, you went through a, a lot of fertiliser hauled a lot of grass to the cows and a lot of cereals into them um, and we also milked three times a day when I first came home and four times a day a year later so we were milking every six hours and yet, even though you were so busy with that, you know, the margins uh, at that time, margins now in dairy are just so small. And so you were moving from what was a really high value industry to a commodity industry. And that must have just been really odd for you. And I, I wonder how that influenced the way that you wanted a farm going forwards. I remember the, the conversation I had with Dad. You know, I, I come home and Dad said, you can't think of this like a, a car garage. It's not the same kind of business. And I went, of course it is, but every business is the same. And as you can imagine, I had the, the biggest learning curve in history, <laughs> trying to get my head around that one. But I suppose, I mean, in a way, the, the decision was made for me. You know, the, the month that my dad died, the commodity price collapsed. We went from, from a milk price of 27 pence per litre uh, down to 9 pence per litre within six months. And to put that into bigger numbers, my first year in farming, a lot, I made a loss of £110,000. Then the bank decided that uh, because of my lack of knowledge and the, the significant losses I had made and the changes to the business, they pulled funding. And we were basically left in a situation where, as a tenant farm, uh, farmer, we couldn't sell the farm, so we had to sell as many cows as we could. The only ones that were left were the, the cows that weren't producing enough milk, or weren't in calf, or had sore feet, and uh, they got left us in a better position where we had to do something different. It was at that time I realised that this high production system we had been chasing and trying to make points of a penny in, the, in profits just wasn't working anymore, and it was time for a real change, and that, that real change at the time for me was 
selling our milk directly and becoming organic, just the same way that my grandpa had done a way back in the 50s and 60s before fertilizers and chemicals became the mainstay of agriculture. So what really you were doing was coming into this commodity industry and trying to re-establish value. Your farm also has a link to the poet Robbie Burns or Rabbi Burns. Uh, yes, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, we're very proud that, uh, that Rabbi Burns and his family had come to Miss Gill. When it comes to the marketing of our milk, um, back when everything fell down round about me, I really didn't know which way to turn. And it kind of came to me that the best thing we could do is try and recreate the milk that Rabbi Bum would have drank. So back in those days, Rabbi Bum himself had their cows just like we did. They would have eaten a a diet predominantly of grass, which obviously we were were looking to do that as well because we didn't have any money to be able to afford these concentrates we're pumping into the cows. And of course, chemicals and fertilizers weren't a thing back in Bum's day, so we had to work with nature and use nature's flow and nature's rhythm and nature's language to be able to farm. And it was the the very thing that that sort of done it for us. And uh, and we went out there and said, here we are, this is a the milk that Bums himself would have drank and uh, they've never looked back. Now, both of you are organic farmers, but you've both told me that being organic by itself just isn't enough. So, Bryce, why isn't it enough? And having gone regenerative, why do you still keep up the organic certification? Basically, I really loved farming organically. And when I became organic and when we started really researching and studying it and doing what we wanted to do, we realised that there wasn't actually that much difference farming mesquil organically than conventionally. Um, so it was basically just a change from having to pre-plan a bit further, not using the, the fertilising chemicals we were and, and accepting we were going to reduce our output as, as we went forward to become organic. Um, however, at the time, you know, I was looking at the business in various different ways and I realised that because the bank had done what it did to us, and nobody was going to give us finance, but we actually couldn't invest in our farm the way that the organic agriculture required. Um, we started seeing things like because we couldn't pre-plan and reseed and do various things that, that people would normally do, going from conventional to organic, we started losing a lot of grass, which meant we couldn't feed the cows as well as we had to, so we then had to reduce our stocking rate and density. You know, I just saw a spiral happening and it wasn't a good one. And at the same time, I actually stumbled upon uh, Alan Savory's video that he did, the TED Talk video that, that I'm sure everyone's watched now. And it, it was just like a light bulb moment. I just thought, that's incredible. You know, there's, there's something in this. The only thing I couldn't do was link up how Alan Savory could talk about desertification and how that actual thinking could be used in Scotland. So I went and actually did the holistic management course with CLM and then realised that we could use our cows as herding animals and move them every day and, and regenerate our land. Um, so, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't want to come out there and say, you know, regenerative is better because of X and organic is better because of Y. It's actually two different systems and it's actually very more than what most people think. I really do support organic agriculture. I really support regenerative agriculture. And obviously regenerative agriculture is something that's it's still in the early days. You know, t- 10, 15 years ago, nobody was really talking about it. And now it's, it's become a kind of buzzword, if you like. And you know, the question of why do we still keep up organic certification, um, I do so because I truly believe in it. I believe that organic certification is something that a lot of people can look to and, and work within the regulations of. There's not really much written down from a regenerative point of view. So if you know, if someone was wanting to become a regenerative farmer, they could go and see lots of different ways of it being done. However, organic just has that certification and that written down set of standards that people can follow and understand. Um, and also the, the other side of things is you know, that organic certification Removing myself as a farmer and putting my my, uh, dairy processor hat on, 
we can support other organic dairy farms in southwest Scotland, we can buy the milk, give them a fair price for the milk that we buy, and then sell it out to the consumer. And explaining organic certification to the consumer, it's something that they can understand more easily. So what we do at Mosquilla is we actually have two different strands. The milk that's produced on Mosquilla, we have a little gold foil goes in the cap of that, and that's for regeneratively farmed milk, and we have a marketing backup for that that explains to the customer what it is. But then the mainstay that the sort of 90% of the milk we sell is organic, and people understand that because a, a good backup from the organic certifiers about what organic actually means and the benefits to the environment there. David, you're organic and you're also regenerative, and you've talked about there being differences uh, in terms of the outcomes for both your land and the livestock between those systems. Well, I think my experience is very similar to Bryce's. We started with organic and it brought us into contact with people who were talking the beyond organic message, the regenerative message. What organic brought to us was discipline. It stopped us from sliding back because the the temptation always was in the early days, particularly when things weren't working, as Bryce mentioned, initially your farm takes a shock. You've been dependent on these uh, artificial inputs for long enough, and then your natural systems have been badly damaged. It takes quite a few years before that recovers. And what we found was that once we'd got through that painful transition barrier um, of the first, well, for us it was 10 years probably because we didn't really know what we were doing. Then the farm started to perform. We were uh, managing it better and the system was working and it was the discipline of the organic and the standards that it set that, uh, that set us on the right direction. And the, it was then a case of the gaining uh, experience and confidence that this type of farming based around um, uh, harnessing the power of nature that was was key to, to getting a long-term, profitable, resilient a robust business model, which was not dependent on the vagaries of the commodity markets globally. So it's, it's really about um, understanding better natural systems, trying to harness better the, the, the power that's there. This stuff's been around for billions of years. You know? So it's it's kind of got it right. We we came along thinking we could do better. And really, the evidence is we can't. And what we do do, uh, the interference that we cause um, is, is highly damaging to the environment and to, and to people. And, and the regen message goes further again than, than, than the land. The land is so important. Uh, then it's the animals on that land and the welfare of those animals, which is what took us to the next stage was uh, the suckling the dairy cows and, and milking them once a day. Uh, so creating a more natural system for the dairy cow to see how she responded, if she responded the same way as the land, which we have actually found to be the case. We're now in our fourth year of the suckling experiment and uh, the cows initially, yeah, they were in shock. They didn't know what was going on. They liked having the cows, but they didn't know where, what the rules were anymore. <laughs> and it was quite extraordinary. So uh, our relationship with the cows, our understanding of the cows and their behaviour, all that is part of regen. Uh, and, and then there's the guys, you know, the people on the farm and and uh, trying to give them a, a, a balanced life so that they're not, they're not working 60, 70, 80 hours a week, um, which is so common in dairy uh, these days. Um, it's trying to give them a 40-hour um, a week with a decent, uh, income so that they, they have got um, some quality of life and that, so all these aspects of regen come together and it's all based around organic setting the baseline the standards and then building from there so I think I think the two go hand in hand. Bryce just coming back to you again looking at the market for milk where most people are buying commodity milk uh, commodity cheese they're they're buying it through retailers how difficult is it for you as an independent producer to find a market for your milk so the, the, the 
the market out there is, uh, is certainly a funny thing. So basically, when we started out, believe it or not, it was, for the first month or so, it was an absolute disaster for us. We, we literally couldn't get anyone to buy our milk. The, the local area was uh, was absolutely saturated with, with doorstep delivery dairies delivering conventional milk at a very low price, so we decided to stay away from doorsteps initially. So that left shops and coffee shops. However, if we went round about the, the shops and coffee shops of Ayrshire, we got a very low hit rate. We just couldn't seem to get anyone to take it because of the increased price. So we basically got in there at, at sort of 40 and 50% more expensive than the, the next producer. The, the sort of break for us came that, um, so back when I was saying that we were really looking to launch the milk that Rabbi Burns would have drunk, um, we had discovered that because of this very old-fashioned way of brewing the milk that we used, it actually worked extremely well in coffee shops, uh, particularly specialty coffee shops who were looking for a very specific milk. And that sort of gave us a big break. We were up to Glasgow and met a few of the coffee shops and it just sort of managed to get into one, two, three and, and it kind of grew from there. You know, that, that would have been great for us. What I could have done is I could have just stopped then and just, you know, sold all the milk we had on the scale organically and sold it direct to the consumers and that was working really well for us. One of the biggest changes I've made is when I realised that there was a market there and a potential for growth that we, that we could really do something with in the industry. What I wanted to do was I always had this thing in my head and you know I remembered when that the bank manager came to me that day and told me that's it, it's over. Um, you know, you're, you're paying this money back. And I always remember when they were milked by a phone and said the milk price was going from 27 down to nine pence. It's never left me. So I just thought instead of us as one farm just trying to sell all our milk and make profit, we could potentially start inviting other farms along with us. So we, we spoke to Omsco. So Omsco is the, the largest organic co-op in the UK for, for dairy. And uh, we spoke to them and asked if it's something they'd be interested in. And it turned out that, that it was. And we started moving in and chasing a very different market. So we increased our marketing. We started targeting doorsteps, independent coffee shops, independent retailers, and uh, places like bakers and ice cream makers. And we started saying, you know, we're not just one farm, we're a collective of farms, and we're really looking to change Scottish dairy. We're looking to drive fairness in milk from grass to glass. You know, that, that was a real challenge for us. I didn't quite realise at the time how much of a challenge it was going to be to try and break into the wider market. You know, we were going in there with a product which was 30 and 40% more expensive. Um, you know, our base costs were higher because we're paying the farmers more than what the other uh, dairies were. And also our processing costs were higher because we also were brewing the milk instead of pasteurising it. There is a market out there, but for farmers, farmers themselves have been down the route of vending machines, which have worked very well for the local community. We ourselves are trying to position ourselves slightly different. We are trying to get coverage across Scotland to realise our vision of sustainable dairy. The market's there and it's a real challenge trying to compete against the conventional milk market. However, I believe with marketing is starting to, to really get out there. People know what organic milk is, they know what Miskeel stands for, and I believe the market is growing, and um, I'm really, really excited about where this year is going to bring us. Both of you are known because of your cow with calf dairy farming, and so I want to I want to go into that area in a little bit more detail. David, you've been farming for 35 years, and so let me take you back to the start. You said that despite some misgivings that you had about dairy farming in terms of chemical inputs and the cattle welfare, that you felt that you became desensitised to some extent, that the way that you farmed was just normal, it was the way it was done. But then later, um, partly when your wife Wilma came along, but also when the farm started opening up to the public, people started asking questions and reacting to those common dairy practices that you were talking about and that they could see on the farm. And so you started to feel that things had to change. I'm just wondering, what kind of things were the public picking up? What were they asking? What what struck me, there were two things struck me. Um, The first thing that struck me was how disconnected the public were from farming. They, They had no idea what farming was about at all.
all. All they had was the Janet and John school books uh, idea of farming. The, the farmer was a bit of straw in his mouth and a couple of hens and cows and pigs and what have you. Um, and that was that was the perception they came to the farm with. And um, so they were very bemused by the whole thing because uh, we were we were running um, walking and um, farm tours on uh, tractor and trailer every day during the summer. So we had a lot of people coming in, into contact with us. The, the, the other thing that struck me um, was the, the, the separation of cows and calves. So that was something that created a lot of uh, angst amongst particularly women uh, visitors. Um, it, it, re- it made me realise that yes, this was this was an issue that was possibly going to become something of a problem uh, down the road. So that's it. The, the, the idea thinking um, and the question was always coming back to me from Wilma and from our, our visitor centre manager. Why don't you leave the cows together? <laughs> My reply was, I'd be out of business in five minutes. And it, and it was only when we came to rebuild the whole dairy that we we thought, okay, can we do this? We went across to the Netherlands. We took the whole team across and saw some Dutch guys who were smaller scale, 30, 40 cows, um, and they were leaving the calves on for three months. They were organic, and uh, and it saved them from ca- uh, rearing the calves separately. The downside of three-month weaning was um, the calves went backwards very quickly because they were still heavily dependent on physical and emotional um, contact with the cow. We realised that that was going to be just too soon. And, and we knew that this had to be managed if we were going to do it. We came back thinking, yeah, we could do that. And and really that set us on that train. And we, 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 we rebuilt our dairy and we built in uh, facilities for um, handling the calves and cows together. And, um, you know, that was... Uh, it took us four years to build the dairy because we we're building most of it ourselves. So uh, we, yeah, uh, we evolved. Uh, we trialed it first in 2012 for six months, and we learned a lot from that. And that informed us for the um, going wholesale into the cow with calf, uh, without question. And of course, it just happened to coincide because once we'd finished, completed that, we, we started making cheese um, in small scale in our uh, ice cream dairy. And at the same time, we thought, right, we're going to have to scale up this operation. And we started building our cheese dairy. And that took us three years. And Bryce, I'm just going to come across to you because you're you're newer to this. You know, David's been trying things out and finessing his uh, his coward calf system since 2012. Welfare is central to your vision of farming as well. And you're determined to make cow with calf dairy production work. Can you just explain what cow with calf farming actually means? Uh, yes, absolutely. It's about leaving the baby calf with the mothers through our own research and just as, as David had said you know, a, a lot of people seem to start this out with leaving the baby calves on for three months at a time and then taking them off in a, in a more sort of conventional manner a lot of people out there like ourselves um, I think David's actually longer than us are, are leaving the, the calves on longer for me personally the reason that we went down this route was it was just at the start of the time I was looking into regenerative farming and the kind of crux for me was that taking the concentrates away from the cows and, and managing their grass better uh, but then we were still having to buy concentrates in for the calves and the calves were still not growing as well as some of the calves out there that we'd seen in our systems I, I had a real interest in, in what David and Milma were doing at the time D- David and Milma is, is pioneers in, in Scotland for cowy calf dairy and we're very lucky that we're not too far away from them and you know that, that was the reason we kind of got into it you know getting back to the, the, the welfare of the animals um, me myself when I first started the cowy calves thing you know I wasn't really doing it right I didn't I I didn't have the opportunity to go to other farms and see it. However, 
someone joined with Burfan two years ago, Elizabeth, um, we call her the cow happiness manager and uh, that's exactly what her job is, is just to go out and make sure the cows are happy and she's fantastic, she's been in with the cows and calves every day, um, we, we wean between sort of five and six months is, is our weaning age, it's very calf dependent, we don't have a set date, we just kind of see how the calves are doing. And, and it's and quite different, it's, it's, it's sort of quite different isn't it across different cow and calf producers and I guess that's, that's sort of part of the question is you know whether it's possible to define it. Uh, well, I suppose there is, yes. I mean, you, you've just touched on it there perfectly. You know, it's, it's like what I was saying earlier on. If you think about organic versus regenerative farming, organic has a very specific set of rules. Regenerative doesn't really. And it's probably the same with cow with calf dairying. Um, you know, the way that David does it, the way that I do it, there could be someone who's multi-suckling four or five calves. Oh, sorry, four or five, sorry, that's, that's making sense. Maybe two or three calves onto the same cow. And they can be calling themselves cow with calf dairies. Um, you know, there just isn't a set of written standards out there. So I suppose every system is slightly different. Um, as I mentioned, we, we wean between sort of five and six months calf dependent. Others have a very set date of three, four, five, six months, whatever that may be. Um, so perhaps that's something that, uh, that is needing to be looked at as a set of standards on it. And I know that that David and Wilma are sort of pioneering that as well through some of the, the research that they've done too. It shows how important it is, doesn't it, to have these audit sort of processes. And obviously, if you're selling direct to a customer and you can have a conversation with the customer, the customer is able to see what you're doing and, uh, and and understand it. Whereas if you're selling, you know, even one or two steps down the line, then being able to explain and demonstrate through labelling and through the narrative on websites becomes critical. And obviously, that then is underpinned by the organic certification that you were talking about. Now, Bryce, you, you, I think you've talked about the calves taking about a third of the milk um, and, you know, with dairy margins being incredibly tight, even, you know, when you're independent and you're adding value. How are you making the economics work? You're absolutely right. Um, yeah, the, the calves are certainly sucking their way through the milk that we're producing anyway. Um, I suppose for, for us, um, being 100% grass-fed and um, doing the, the calves suckling as well, we, we have lost um, a good two-thirds of the milk we produce. So I sat down myself and put my pure business hat on here. I sat down and got my spreadsheets out and went, this does not work. We cannot make this work. But then I realised vegan activism had started. A lot of people were starting to look at plant-based milk. And I looked at the economics of that. And, you know, plant-based milks were in the supermarkets at that time for £2.20 to £2.50 a litre. Compare that to dairy at 14 50 pence a litre on the, in the shelf just along the, the aisle from it. And you see there's a big difference there. So what I believed was if people are willing to pay a certain amount for plant-based milks because they believe that that is the, that's more ethical or that's more environmental or, or, or whatever they've been told from the PR and the, the marketing campaigns of massive companies and they are willing to pay it for that. So what I did was I, I calculated how much um, I believed that my milk was worth and how much it was going to cost us to produce it. I put a price out there for a pint of milk. It was almost double the price of the normal organic milk that we, that we produced but on par with the plant-based milks and very fortunately for me, our local community had backed us with it and people are, are travelling to, to buy the, the gold milk that we sell. I, I won't lie, it's, it's not been the, the easiest thing we've ever done. Um, you know, there's not many people out there trying to do this in a, in a liquid way. Um, but every year we've been supported better and better and because we've been supported more and more, we've been able to put more thoughts, more processes and, and more um, more intelligent thoughts into to how we breed our cows, how we manage the system and we're learning all the time as well. You know, it's just try, trying to get milk production up but keep the, the ethics of what we do correct and the welfare of the, the animal is key obviously. So yes, it's, it's certainly getting there but because we, it's only working because we have this 
this direct relationship with the consumer. Uh, the market's certainly not there yet for for, uh, for larger dairies to do it and, and entice other farmers. However, I believe that is coming. I believe that people are looking into it. And I mean, we ourselves that are speaking to another dairy farm um, about potentially going down this route and trialling it. So, you know, there's a lot of work been done, done out there by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And, and it's all about having the relationship with the end user who believes in that way of farming. Interesting. Now, David, I, I suppose, you know, whether you, when you're farming with livestock, then there's always going to be, uh, um, you know, a series of trade-offs, um, you know, some positive and, and some less positive uh, between the economics and the ethics. And, and you talked about having experimented with cow and calf dairying uh, in 2012. You then underwent a whole farm transition in 2016. And I mean, as Bryce said, your work has been hugely influential for many other independent dairy producers, but it's it's not been an easy journey at all. And I wonder if you could briefly talk us through, you know, some of the challenges that you faced on this journey. Yes, it's been it's been challenging. The and we're still learning. I would say that the the cow calf. It sounds like a very simple thing. Leave the calf with the cow. Cow raise the calf. Jobs are good in, but it's not as simple as that by any means. The, the whole the dynamics of the, the system changed completely. I very much equate it to the transition to organic farming, which was a, it was a whole system change. Um, but at least so with I, organic, there's a route map and you, you were doing it from scratch. <laughs> Absolutely. Believe me, it has been quite painful at times. Um, not just for us, the cows and calves as well. Um, when a cow is suckling a calf, she wants to keep the best milk for the calf, so she doesn't let down the high-fat milk. We get semi-skimmed milk from cows that are suckling. The the cows that are suckling, if there's not a bull presence in their in the herd, uh, you have what they call lactational anestrus, which is a thirty-day delay in in estrus following calving, where if you have got a tight calving pattern as we do, um, you can lose half the cows uh, slipping through into uh, following calving groups. So you, you, the, the management changes, you, the, the calves, you have to be able to manage the calves because at a certain stage, once they get to about three months of age, they will drink as much milk as the cow produces. This is where the compromises start coming in. So you, you say, right, uh, we'll separate the cow and calf overnight. So your, your layout of your buildings or your, um, your fields and tracks have to accommodate that change in, in management. When you've got cows and calves together indoors, uh, which we do, you have a totally different um, dynamic in the um, bacteriology and the microbiology. Uh, so that we've had problems with uh, cryptosporidium, pastoral pneumonia, but on each occasion, there has been management changes that we could make that would overcome these problems. So, yeah, we're, we're uh, blundering our way through the the, the system um, and learning as we go. And the cows are the same. The cows, first in the first six months, the cows didn't know when they came out of the parlour whether the calves were going to still be there or not. So they were reluctant to leave the calf to come into the parlour. But no, you know, it's not a problem. They're, they're queuing in the morning to come and get milked and... You know, they know the calves are going to be there uh, when they come back. So it's the whole relationship, the, the stress, the, uh, the the dynamics of disease and, um, and, and physical management and, and the stress with us and the staff. You know, it's very, very depressing when you've got calves that are dying from cryptosporidium and you don't know what to do about it. But when you see a, a when you get a, a problem solved, it's, it's just so inspiring. You know, it's just it gives everybody a, a real boost. 
So that, that, and this is a critical thing. Staff, absolutely key. If your staff are not interested or don't think it's going to work, it will work. The, the staff really have to uh, be on board, absolutely, because uh, the human-cow relationship is critical to this system. But it, 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 yeah, every every year it's getting better. Every year we see a, a progress. So so we, we've got a, a long way to go. I mean, you know, we're getting something like three and a half thousand liters per cow from a pasture-fed, 100% pasture-based diet. Um, and they're giving around about two to two and a half thousand liters to the calf over the five months. And um, so that's giving us a cow producing five, five and a half thousand liters of milk from forage, which is, I think, by any measure, is a pretty good production. So that shows that the cow does respond to the to the, the management. It's about us um, then refining that to to get the best of so everybody gets the best of both worlds. Um, and and but, just to be specific, David, when you're talking about cow with calf, are the calves with the cows 24 hours a day until they naturally wean? No, 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 no. <laughs> we couldn't afford to do that. Three months in, roughly. So we have, we, have, we have a fairly tight calving block, two blocks, one in the autumn, one in the spring. And that's to give us balance um, all year round of, of milk supply. After three months, you must separate overnight or you won't get any milk. You, you just won't. The cow will, some cows will give milk, but not the majority will not give you milk because they can hold all the milk back for the calf and the calf will drink it. So uh, we separate overnight um, for the next couple of months still we're we're milking once a day so it's you know it's, it's not uh, it's not, not onerous by any means and the, so you, you gain another seven or eight litres um, just by doing that. So instead you go from maybe down to three or four litres, you're back up into the double figures again for a while. And then by the five, fifth and sixth month, again, um, the cow uh, yield profile is dropping off and she can hold back um, a lot of that milk for the calf, even although they've been separated by uh, for 12 hours. So... Yeah, it, uh, it, it's about managing the system. It's a compromise. And, um, uh, and I think that, you know, the cows kind of know as well, they know um, it's a compromise. They know that they've got to get a little and to get a little. We then wean the calves at five to six months. So the weaning process, again, the whole system is based, our management system that we're evolving for this, this setup is, is based around transitioning the cows, reducing stress, cutting stress out of the system. One of the, or several of the big advantages of separating overnight is A, you get more milk. B, the calf peer bond gets strengthened and you're starting to weaken the calf mother bond. Then also that when the calf is 24 hours on the cow, it doesn't eat solids. So you, the, the rumen doesn't develop. So overnight separation, calf gets hungry, starts eating because they've got access to their own um, feed, their silage supply. They they go and start eating forage and uh, so the rumen develops. So that when you get the five to six months, you've got a calf that physically and emotionally is, is prepared for separation. We then use things called quiet wean nose clips. And these are very, very clever little clips that pop into the, the nose and uh, it's a flap that hangs down over the top lip of the calf and it can drink and eat solids and drink uh, water. But when it reaches into the teat of the cow, the little flap pushes the teat away. It is very, very clever. Uh, it just takes seconds to pop these in. And uh, we leave that in, those in for a week. And by the end of that week, the calf is physically independent um, of the mother. Uh, we then take the clips out and we don't open the gate. And we used to have a, a Ferrari in the morning when we didn't open the, the gate uh, for the first couple of days. It was just uh, deafening. But now there's just grumbling. There's grumbling 
while they've got the clips in, there's grumbling for a day or two. But you know, it is not. It is so so quiet. It is just trans. So again, management. Uh, there is a management solution really to all the technological problems that uh, that we have, and we don't need um, in. In invasive technology, we can we can manage these things. So it's management-based systems is absolutely key. Fantastic. Well, thank you both so much. That's been really fascinating. And But that's all we have time for. I'd like to thank my guests, Bryce Cunningham from Moscale Farm in Ayrshire and David Finlay from the Ethical Dairy in Dumfries and Galloway. This series has been inspired by the Soil Association's 10 Years for Agroecology project and by the Food Farming and Countryside Commission's work on farming for change. Our beef, mixed farming, arable and vegetables and horticulture agroecology podcasts are already available. And of course, we have a long back catalogue of regenerative agriculture programmes for you to listen to at faifarms.com forward slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening, please come back and listen to more. Tell your friends, like us, review us and share our links. Farmgate is a partnership project for Farmwell and FAI Farms. We're funded by Sankalpa and you can join the conversation on Twitter by searching for Farmgate Podcast. I've been Finlow Castain. Bye for now.